Snap Studios. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the name your price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Okay, so don't judge me, Snappers. I know how this looks. I do know this, but I'm going to tell you anyway. University of Michigan, go blue. Professor Miller's negotiation class. He pairs everyone up. I get Ellen. Great. Professor hands each of us a piece of paper. On this paper is a story about my client, Mrs. Mackey, who heard an airplane crash into a house down the street. She's perfectly fine. No physical injuries, but she wakes up with nightmares. And on my paper, it gives me the dollar amount she'd be willing to settle for. Ellen's paper has the bottom line for the insurance company. The professor tells us to enter into a negotiation against our partner, and whoever does the best for their imaginary client passes this part of the course. Whoever does not fails. I turn to Ellen. She turns to me. We wait. Her looking at me, me looking at her. I blink my eyes faster, 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 until finally Ellen throws out the first number. She says, 10 grand. We settle this nonsense and call it a day. Almost spit out my tea. I tell her, I don't know what you're thinking, but I can't see this settling for anything under half a million dollars. My client deserves restitution. Your client is a busybody. I'm doing you a favor just by entertaining this nonsense. I study my piece of paper like it holds all the answers. I'm going to ask you, Ellen, to speak about my client, Miss Mackey, with respect. And understand, my hands are tied. I've only got a certain amount of negotiating authority. $11,000, that's my final offer. I get up from the table, put on my coat real slow. I tell Ellen, we're not even in the same plane of existence. What do you want? First of all, I already asked for Miss Mackey to be afforded some dignity. Your client is a cat woman who pees in a bucket. And if you agree to remedy the damage your client has caused, I might be able to come down a little bit. Half an hour later, we shake on the deal. $250,000. Ellen says, okay, now let's see what's on your paper. I don't think that'd be a good idea. Give me and she snatches it out of my hands. Then I see all the blood drain from her face and collect in her eyes. $500? She's been happy with $500? You're such a liar! Ellen gets up, slams the door, leaves me there, alone, thinking, guilty. See, if Ellen and I had had our own disagreement, We'd have settled it. Easy, no hard feelings. But it wasn't between her and me. I did what I did for someone else, for Miss Gertrude Mackey. And maybe, maybe that made all the difference. Today on Snap Judgment, from WNYC, Proxy. Amazing stories from real people acting on behalf of, instead of, or in lieu of someone else entirely. My name is Glenn Washington. If a plane crashes into your house, I may know a very good attorney. Because you're listening to Snap Judgment. Snap. Now then, we're going to start off the Snap Judgment proxy episode in two places at the same time. Which means... Our main man can't be in both at once, but do not worry. All will soon be revealed.
when the teenagers kicked my head to pieces, they wiped, I mean, everything, all memory of everything. When Mark Hogan Camp woke up in a hospital, all he knew about how he got there is what people told him. That five men followed him out of a bar one night, beat him unconscious, and left him in the street. He'd been in a coma for nine days. I started to ask questions because I didn't know who I was. I had to ask other people, what was I like? Was I a bad guy? Was I mean? Was I? And they would tell me, no, you weren't mean. You're just drunk. You know, you're an all right guy. Did I hurt anyone? No, you just hurt yourself. Besides losing his memory, Mark also lost the ability to walk, to write, and even for a little while to talk. They didn't let him out of the hospital for more than a month. When he got home, Mark found old journals and photos that helped him piece together who he was. He even started to get some of his actual memories back. It turned out he had indeed been a serious alcoholic. He'd also been married once, a long time ago, but he'd since been divorced. He found the video of his wedding day, but he had no actual memory of it. There was one thing in particular, though, that was by far and away the most confounding of all the stuff that Mark dug up. This is his roommate describing the moment Mark first opened his closet. The first night we went home to his apartment, when he got out of the hospital, he sees these whole shelf of high heels. He says to me, do I have a girlfriend that lives here? And I said, no. And he says, well, what's with all the shoes? And I said, well, Mark, uh, those are your shoes. Uh, you buy them, you collect them, and you wear them. <laughs> it gets stranger by the moment, doesn't it? 218 pair of women's essence. I mean, they wore these. They scuffed them up. I can tell if they're a smoker or not. I should be a shoe detective or something. They were all given to me by women. Yep. This was the missing piece of the puzzle of the night at the bar. The morning after the assault, the police found the men that beat Mark up and brought them in for questioning. This tape is from an interview with one of the suspects that they brought in. We were in the bar. The guy said he was a cross-dresser and everything. And I started figuring out he was going to get it. I think Freddie wanted to beat his ass. He was saying, I have no problems with anybody. I have no problems with anybody. That guy didn't do nothing to anybody. I could tell he was being set up. Since I can't remember what happened in the bar, what led them to beat me up, I was told that I told them I was a cross-dresser so I get all angry and stuff, thinking about it. I don't know if I'll start ripping them apart. I don't know if I'm going to want to kill them. And I don't know if it's going to take, like, eight police officers to shoot me. There's no fair fighting in the person that's been jumped on from behind and every memory kicked out of his head. There's no etiquette to fighting after that. Mark was in intensive physical therapy and in talk therapy. And then just when he started to get better, Medicaid said they weren't going to pay for the therapies anymore. Mark was on his own. I figured, all right, well, what's the first thing I got to work on? I, that's my imagination. And, like, I've been fighting to get balance and everything else back, you know, I fought for my imagination to get that back. And that's when Mongol started. 
One day, about a year after Mark got out of the hospital, he was browsing in the hobby shop when he noticed a doll. It was an action figure dressed in a bomber jacket and khakis, a World War II fighter pilot, and Mark bought it and brought it home to his trailer. Back at home, he went into his backyard and found some scraps of plywood lying around. He built a box, and on the side, he painted Hogan Camps. It was a bar, and he named it for himself, Mark Hogan Camp. The action figure became his tiny alter ego that owned this bar and lived in a town he called Marwin Call. I just figured I'll be like Sam Malone, you know, and cheers, you know, he's a recovering alcoholic and he is a bartender. I made my alter ego figure drink only coffee because that's what I do in real life, drink tons of coffee. The more I built and the more I played around, you know, and bought figures and stuff, the more the story just came alive in my head. Mark decided that Marwin Call was in Belgium during World War II. His alter ego was an American fighter pilot. He didn't just add this kind of detail arbitrarily, though. He told himself stories about the town and the people in it. Like the story of the day Mark's alter ego found Marwin Call. I came flying over in my P-40 Warhawk on fire. And I saw a flat field down below, and I crash-landed it. And when I walked into town, there was nobody there. And then one by one, beautiful Barbie-looking women started emerging. The SS, I found out later, went through there and killed men. It was like a desolate town. So I came out and they thanked me. And I was the only man in town and 27 Barbies. I was thinking, boy, what a lucky guy I am. So they gave me my own place, my own building, which I turned into a bar. After Mark built the bar, he added other buildings. And eventually, he actually had a whole little town in his backyard. And these weren't just little rudimentary structures. They were super detailed. He put a bar mirror into his bar, then tiny posters, little beer taps, and even magazines for the Barbies reading Pleasure. Everything was perfectly to scale. Some days, the Barbies wore old uniforms of their dead male soldiers and carried rifles. Other days, they wore heels, sometimes both. Even the tiny handguns, about the size of a bottle cap, could be cocked. I started needing vehicles for my town. And the tires, they look so brand new. They got a little factory seam around everyone. It looks like it just rolled off a showroom. I don't want that. So I started dragging stuff. He got a toy Jeep for the dolls. He tied a string to it, put the Barbies in it, and he went for long walks, pulling the Jeep behind him. He'd go day after day to wear down the wheels. The Jeep has 180 miles on it, which is 1,080 miles in one-sixth scale. When I'm even walking, I have to constantly look at my feet. I can't look around like other people do and just walk. And I still lose my balance and stuff when I'm doing that, but I'm getting better at it. The most important part of Marwin Call, though, were the people. There was Mark and the 27 Barbies, but there were other characters, too. And he just kept adding more. I wanted people to know about my town and to be part of my town. That's why I started putting people that I know in it, is because I feel so alone here. If I have an alter ego from people that I know in my town, you know, I'll be surrounded by my friends. So he added a doll for his neighbor, his old coworkers, even his mom. But the most important character was Mark's doll's girlfriend. She wasn't a person who actually existed in Mark's real life, at least not anymore. But she was loosely based on Mark's ex-wife. 
His ex-wife's name was Anastasia, and from pictures, Mark knows that she had blonde hair. So Mark added a blonde doll and called her Anna. I won a photo contest, and with that money, I bought Anna, my favorite female doll. I wish that she would come alive. When I first got the doll, I fell in love with her face so much that I had to paint makeup on her. This is the latest girlfriend that I had nine years ago. It's the last time I ever felt a woman, hugged a woman, kissed a woman. The first four years of that nine years was because I was a drunk and I didn't care to look for women. I'd just rather drink. In the last five years, I've been me being busy trying to get back my senses. I wish I had somebody to go over and go preferably to manipulate the female dolls. That'd be neat, playing dolls with a girlfriend. <sighs> the story, meanwhile, was just going on in my head like, okay, the SS heard about my town, my bar. So eventually, the SS find Marwin Call. and there's nobody around. We all <laughs> decided to go to the bar, Hogan Camp's catfight club, and hide in there. And these guys wanted to know where the bar was. Where's the bar? Want to drink? Because I remember that's the way I was when I was an alcoholic. Cry, I want to drink. You know, I remember that. The SS took me. They tied me up, then started cutting me, and on my alter ego, I put a scar down the right side of my face because this is the side that was damaged in real life on me. So then, dolls in my bar heard that the SS had me tied up, and they were cutting me to ribbons and beating me up. So Anna took Chris and Jacqueline and traded their uniforms for Barbie clothes. So they went into town with their hands behind their back and each hand was carrying a pistol. And the three of the girls went into the church and just like precision surgeon, they eliminated the SS. Years passed, and Mark just kept adding to the story and to the town. At the end of every story, justice and peace always prevailed in Marwin Call. But in Mark's real life, Mark still spent most of his time alone. He was still scared to leave the house. The main way he got out is when he put his dolls in his toy Jeep, and he went for walks, dragging the Jeep behind him. When I feel apprehensive, and I look down at the Jeep, and I know... They'll protect me. The dolls. There's a lot of firepower in there, and I make sure I put the correct weapons with the most firepower in there before I take my walks. So just in case, people don't know I'm disabled. They don't know that I won't think correctly. They don't know that I still have psychological problems, like I'm always on guard, always looking over my shoulder, always worried about being attacked again. They just see me on the outside. Outside, yeah, I'm trying to act like a normal human so I don't get attacked again by the stronger ones. It was on one of these walks that one of his neighbors, a guy named David, noticed Mark. Mark was pulling his little toy Jeep along the side of the road, and David was curious. I saw him again when he was walking down the street. I drive way up ahead in a park. So I'm sitting there, and I can sense him getting a little closer and closer. 
And I go, hey, you know, how's it going? And he's like, oh, pretty good, pretty good. And he stops and proceeded to introduce me to the people in the, in the Jeep. There were two figures in the Jeep. He says, this is actually so-and-so who's, who's someone I work with. And this other woman, she's actually an old neighbor of mine. I was like, has anybody else seen this stuff or talked to you, you know? Because you're the first person that ever really stopped and said, you know, that's, that's interesting. What are you doing or, or where are you going or, or what's that all about? The next day, this envelope stuffed with photos and I opened them up and I was just astonished by the realism and the, and the feeling. When I went to his house after I saw the photos, I said, you know, do you have any more of these? And he goes, oh, I've got thousands of them. And I'm like, yeah, sure. Mark actually really did have thousands of pictures, boxes and boxes full of them. Over the past five years, Mark hadn't just been imagining the stories. He was actually setting up scenes and shooting them from the perspective of the Barbies. One photo shows Mark's doll tied up by the wrists. An SS soldier is holding a knife and looks like he's lunging at Mark's doll. He's got these bloody cuts across his chest and his head hangs like he's been tied up there for hours. In another photo from when Mark's alter ego meets Anna and they start to fall in love, they're sitting in the back of the Jeep. Anna lays her head against his chest. Her hand rests on his hand that's slung over her shoulder and his head leans slightly towards hers. Looking at the Barbies together, it's practically like you can hear them breathing. And there was even a shot where Mark's favorite Barbies dressed his doll in stockings and high heels the day he decided he would come out as a cross-dresser in his town. David was blown away by the photos, and he also just happened to be a photographer himself. Because I'm a photographer, I always choose, how do you manage all your, your assets and your negatives? And he goes, oh, I never even keep the negatives, really. I don't think the negatives, I throw them away. It's funny, I don't, I don't think he ever even thought of himself as being a photographer. He was just, he was just using a camera as a tool to communicate. And definitely didn't identify himself as an artist. It was all such a genuine thing. And I just, I felt like it was, it was too, too amazing to, to not share with other people. And he tells me that there's a curator of an art gallery that wants to display my photos. David showed the photos to a friend, and his friend loved them. So they offered Mark an exhibition in New York City. And Mark agreed to it, but he was hesitant. I'm happy about the whole thing, except the talk of me taking something so sentimental to me and having it on display 100 miles away. It's a very big decision for me to make. It's that subconscious fear that I still have, you know, about being hurt again. That's the biggest fear. I don't want to get hurt mentally or emotionally or physically ever again. So that's why, thank God, there's that other voice in my head that still didn't get broke in that attack that tells that side that's so worried, hey, come on, don't think about all that stuff. I'm still afraid to go to the city, but that's where courage comes in. I was taught that courage is to face the thing, to do the thing, even with, though I have such great fear of doing it. So Mark decides he will go to his opening. He packs his favorite dolls, and he heads in to New York City. The exhibition opened, and people started to show up. Mark explained the stories to people. He introduced his dolls. And people loved it. The show even got some great reviews in the Village Voice. But Mark, who carried his camera around his neck the whole time, was really happiest quietly taking pictures. Or to be more exact, taking pictures of women's shoes. When it was all over, Mark was just happy to go home to his town. My mind can't decide what world to go for. 
realistic world. But there's dangers out there. People out there are so real. And I don't understand all that. I feel safe when I get in my town. I prefer to live in my world. I want to live here in Marwin Call. Back in Marwin Call, his doll starts dragging around a tiny jeep on a string. And at the wheel, there's a tiny little man, one-sixth the size of Mark's doll. His doll lays on the ground on his belly and shoots photos of his teeny little soldier doll. Then he builds an even smaller little town in Marwin Call. My character in the story had to create something for himself to deal with the trauma that he still had from being attacked by five SS and beaten and kicked almost to death. It was a lot of wear and tear on his mind and stuff, so found comfort in building his own little world, his own little town. In Marwinkal. Mark is doing a lot better these days, Snappers. In fact, he has a book of photos coming out November 3rd. I highly recommend you check out. The photos are even more amazing than they sound. Go to marwincall.com. We'll have a link on our website, snapjudgment.org. Big thanks as well to Jeff Mainberg for sharing his tape with us. He made a documentary about Mark back in 2010. The original sound design for that piece was by Leon Morimocho. The story was produced by Julia DeWitt. When Snap returns, the worst reason ever to play rough, and some guests just don't know when to leave. Snap Judgment, the proxy episode continues in just a moment. Stay tuned. Support for Snap Judgment comes from Odoo. What is Odoo? Well, Odoo is the only software your business will ever need. Featuring a suite of integrated business applications, Odoo connects your business operations together so you can get more done in less time. Odoo has apps for everything. CRM, accounting, sales, HR, inventory, marketing, manufacturing, you name it. Odoo's got it. To learn more, visit odoo.com slash snap. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash snap. Welcome back to Snap Judgment, the proxy episode. Today, we're exploring what happens when someone stands in for someone else. For our next story, a young Harrison Scott Key was fishing with his dad in a bass tournament where apparently it's easy to stuff your fish with weights and win. But Harrison's dad, he didn't do that. Instead, when some other fisherman came over to his turf, he did something else entirely. I guess my dad did not like the fact that this man was coming up where we were fishing. And so the man says, hey, how's it going? Y'all catching anything? And, the, and I thought my father was going to say, like, no, you know, caught a couple. How are you doing? And all my father said was, I got a 22 pistol that suggests you'll get your ass out of here right now, young man. And I, I can remember thinking, like, this is such a beautiful lake and a beautiful morning fishing with my father. And we're about to have, like, like Wyatt Earp at the OK Corral. My dad's, like, reaching for his gun. The guy just says, thank you. And, like, his boat turns around. He just sort of trolls away. 
And my dad never said anything to me about it. He never like turned and said, son, that, you know, that's why you carry a gun with you so you can fish in the place you want to fish at. He didn't say anything about it. He just cast his rod and kept on fishing. That's the kind of stuff my dad would do. Cheating was, in, in some ways, the less manly way out. My dad wanted always to do the manly thing, which usually required confrontation. What you have to understand about my dad is that he was like Bo Jackson. He had played on the baseball and basketball and football teams in college. He was that good. But when he broke his leg, he couldn't make those touchdowns. He couldn't make those home runs. And so he decided to make something else. He would make a little man just like him who could fill those cleats and carry the mantle. And it took him three marriages, but finally he got him a boy. And the little thing, of course, was me. I played every sport, soccer, track and field, basketball. When I was four years old, he put me on the seven-year-old baseball team. Like, I have children. My four-year-olds can barely, t you know, take a dump without needing assistance. Well, I remember they put me on the pitching mound to see if I could pitch, and I threw the ball toward the heads of children on other fields. All the parents would freak out, and, and all my dad, my dad would just stand off to the side and say, the boy's got a powerful arm, don't he? You know, bragging to everybody about how, how far I had thrown the ball. And then when I turned 10, my father announced that I was going to play football and that he was going to be my coach. He was going around to all these trailer parks and recruiting the players that nobody wanted. He was going into people's homes and, and talking to the mom and the dad about the boy. I mean, he practically took out a loan to buy equipment for me. And not only that, but he was buying football equipment for all these players. And he was paying their registration fees. And he was giving them rides. And sometimes he was giving gas money to the families just so they could get to the games. In those first couple of years on my dad's team, when I was 10 and 11, you know, I was pretty good. I mean, I was fast, and you know, my dad would speak in these like old-timey metaphors, like, let me hear some leather pop. You know, he'd always be talking about the leather popping, and I was like, what? All he'd do is go, you know, and he'd just clap his hands like I was supposed to know. He'd say things like, eat his lunch, and I'd be like, eat his what? His lunch. My teammates would come up to me and be like, yo daddy is crazy actually had a real a badass team we won bowl trophies and everybody was afraid of us and he soon became a sort of vaunted member of the fraternity of coaches you know a real bootstraps kind of hero but it was around that time that i sort of stopped caring and when we would hit it was no longer fun it was more like attempted murder i just didn't like it as much but you know what I really liked doing was being in the science club. You know, I had a microscope and like learning the constellations and reading about science fantasy novels. I was just, you know, sort of becoming a, a bookish kid. I remember one day telling my dad, you know, maybe I could join the quiz bowl team. He just sort of ignored me. And he was like, make a muscle, boy. And I, you know, made a muscle for him. And then with my other arm, I extended an envelope where I had been invited to join Mensa. And he looked at me and he looked at the envelope and he said, men's who? And I was like, you know, I really, I really would like to join Mensa. They have a, they have a chess club. And I remember in that moment, you could see that something inside him died. He just stared into the middle distance, you know, just trying to figure out why his son, who had all of his DNA, would want to be in the chess club. Ever since I had quit the varsity football team, we didn't talk for months after that until that day. I was 14 years old. I had this huge mirror in my bedroom and I was I took taking off all my clothes and I was looking in the mirror and I was like man I'm so big I could maybe beat somebody's ass you know and I didn't want to do that I, I would rather have been pen pals with somebody but I thought maybe I could do that I mean I was you know I flexed and then came this knock at the door I jumped under the bed and covered myself in a pillow and I turned my book over and feigned reading come in what you doing under that pillow, boy? Reading. What about? Astronauts with big breasts having sex on the moon. It's about science. Neat.
Now, I could tell something was wrong because my father was not generally enthusiastic about science. I need you to do something. Fetch him old cleats you got and get dressed. We going to Pearl. At first, I thought he might be joking um, because I was not on his football team. I was in high school and Pop coached a peewee team of 10-year-old little kids whose necks had trouble holding up a helmet. And so I thought he had to be joking. And then I remembered my dad didn't really joke. I'm coming. On the way to Pearl, we didn't speak very much. All he said was we were running the wishbone. And I said good, but I had no idea what the wishbone was. I knew it was some sort of formation. I was more familiar with wishbone salad dressing. You know, I was glad to be spending time with my dad because he hadn't talked to me in so long, and I wanted to please him. We finally arrived at Pearl, and it had started to rain. My dad, he told me that he had all my, all my gear in the back of the truck. And he got out of the truck, and he just walked away to the football field. The, the only thing that fit was my jock strap, which had never fit before. I go out to the field and of course all my dad's, you know, players, they were like little munchkins running around. How old are you? He's tall as my uncle. And they were like, who are you? And I was like, uh, I'm Coach Keyson. What grade is he in? Hey, what grade are you in? So then my pop comes over and he's like, he ain't got no grade. He's homeschooled. And I was like, I'm not homeschooled. That's when I noticed across the field, some of the moms and dads were starting to point. Ain't he a big one? The big ones is always stupid. Grab a knee. Lead us in a prayer, boy, Pop said to me, and I did as I was told. Oh, God, please help us in this game. Then the game started, and it was a little crazy. Four or five plays into the game, some kid came up from nowhere and just knocked the bejesus out of me. <laughs> I remember getting up to my elbows, and somebody was like, yeah, you got that big one, Rusty. And my teammates all gathered around me. They're like, I think Coach Key's son is dead. I was so embarrassed because I knew my dad could see me. That if I looked at him, that he wouldn't, that he'd be looking away. And something snapped in me. And I stood up and I went insane. I became an enraged gorilla. I was at quarterback. I would take the football. I'd run straight up through the middle. I was like a pinball. I would, I would just make a beeline for the next athlete I could see and would just run right over him. And at one point, actually threw and then caught the very same pass, which has been like a childhood dream of mine. And I looked over there to the sidelines, and my dad was clapping and he was grinning. He was going, that away, boy, stack him like cordwood. And yes. The metaphors, they all made sense now. I started inventing my own. I just ate a tree, you know, I'd be clapping my hands, you know. I'm gonna grow a new head, you know, and they'd be like, what are you talking about? I was like, hush, you know, and i just run right over and I just kept scoring. It was like a scene from Rudy. I mean, it was amazing. And when it was all over, the score was 63 to nothing. Every one of those points was mine. And all of a sudden, I started to panic. I saw parents talking to referees. I saw some people pointing. And so I, you know, I helped my dad sort of get up all the gear as quickly as I could. We get in the car and my ears were ringing. They usually rang because I had been hit so hard and so many times, but now they were ringing because of all the cheering. And I think you know, like even then, I just knew that this sort of awesome feeling, you just couldn't get that at a science fair or a chess tournament. About 10 minutes into our drive, he spoke first. And, you know, he looked at me and he said, I sure would like you to play again, in high school at least. He had seen me kick so much ass. Well, maybe, maybe that I would fall in love with it again. I just looked at him and I said, Pop, I hate football. To have said this after scoring 63 points, I think he got it. He said, a man likes to see his boy play. And just the way he said it, it was almost like he was saying for the first time, I get it. I know you don't like football, but you've earned my respect. I had eaten so many lunches, so to speak. I had popped very much leather. To him, it wasn't cheating. He was just being a dad. 
he just got quiet again. He said, it's fun to whip a little ass, ain't it? And I said, yes, sir, it kind of is. And he never asked me to play football ever again after that. But man, he really wanted me to play baseball. Thank you, Harrison Scott Key, for sharing that story. You can read that piece and others in his memoir, The World's Largest Man. I promise you, it's one of the funniest things I've read all year. We'll have a link to that book on our website, snapjudgment.org. The original sound design for that story was by Renzo Gorio. It was produced by Davey Kim. Now stay tuned, because next up on the show, we've got a fish tale to top all fishtails. For real, when Snap Judgment, the proxy episode, continues. Welcome back to Snap Judgment from WNYC. My name is Glenn Washington, and today we're exploring what happens when one thing stands in for another thing. And on our next story... What happens when a stranger comes to town and refuses to leave until he's left his mark? Snap judgment. The story about the whales. The story about the whales, see? I understand it's a fish story and all this stuff. It is a big fish. But what happened years ago here in Lubeck, Maine? There was a whale that tangled up in the fisherman's lines way off. Some are off a quarter head. You're way out to sea then, see. And it drifted in the shore. It just couldn't swim. You know, the tide carried it in, and it landed on the beach over here in Lubeck. Not too far from here, see. I saw it. I was down there. Oh, it was big. I couldn't tell you how long or... The whale was roughly 55 to 66. 56 and a half feet long. That's 74 animals. That's almost the size of an 18-wheel truck. To me, it was huge. It was huge. It was huge. It was laying down, it would be as high as this ceiling. It was the largest animal I ever saw. No wonder in the Holy Bible it says, Jonah went into the belly of the whale. There was plenty of room there. That mouth was a big one. It was laying there right on top of the beach. And it was laying on its side. I remember it was blackish, grayish color. He wasn't gray anymore. He wasn't grayish, blackish. It was mostly it was black, and black and white. He was white, or whitish, grayish. And there was a lot of wounds on it, old scars. What it looked like was a vicious animal to me. I mean, it was a monster. But I wasn't frightened because it was jaw, dead. Its mouth happened to be open. Its mouth happened to be open. It was a dead fish, but its mouth happened to be open. It might have been uh, middle of August or so. Yeah, August, September, yeah, I can't. Sure, yeah. Evidently, it washed up in the night, and someone spotted it after daylight laying there on the beach. That was uh, early in the morning. The word had started to spread that this whale had washed ashore, and people started coming in. I went down by myself, but there were plenty of people around. Oh, the first day when it washed up, I went down. Yeah, we took the kids down to see it. The little kids were running up to it, and touching it. Climbing up on top of the whale, standing on it and get the pictures taken. Sold hot dogs or something. Made a little money. (laughs) (laughs) I think people in a small town handle death in a different way. They have to deal with it a lot more often. Everybody knows everybody, so when someone dies, the whole town grieves. I actually went down there. It was coming on to sunset, and I sat on the beach and smoked a cigarette and bawled my eyes out. (laughs) Yeah, that's what I'd done. And I, I never went back down. And we lived probably a thousand feet from the beach. The mystery in the whole thing is how we got there. Nobody knows if it died off in the bay and floated ashore, or whether it grounded itself out and died on the beach, or whether it just got confused. Nobody knows. It washed up on a beach. He got snarled up, could have been. I guess that's what happened to him, he drowned. get clear. You know, this is where it wanted to be. They called the Coast Guard to see if they could tow it back offshore and let it go some other town. <laughs> but they wouldn't do it. Because it had already been a couple other places, and that's what they'd done. They towed it out, and Lubeck finally wound up with it. There was no boat big enough. And depending upon the way the wind was blowing when the current was running, 
Some things are almost impossible to get rid of. I mean, this thing laid on the beach for days while the town was trying to determine whether they, how they was going to get rid of it. And it sat there, just passing the buck, because government didn't know what to do. They were arguing. One branch of government was around vicious, sir. Arguing. It was too big to move. You couldn't move it. You couldn't do anything. We're a very poor town. We're the poorest county in the state of Maine, and that we would be the ones having to put in the a bill. In small town, Lubeck, it was big doings. All the people in the town, in the town office, and the whole nine yards were all disturbed because, like any dead body, it began to smell, you know, it to stink the town. A lot of people were saying, we got to move out of here on account of the odor from this whale, see? You could smell it. Low tide smells around here anyways, but this reeked of death. Rotten meat sat in the sun for a month. You just take the cover off the can, stick your head in there, and that's just about what it smelled like. It was an oily, greasy smell. It was right in your nose. Oh, it smelled like rotten Rotten meat. fish and oil. It smelled, they couldn't stand yeah. it. You know, when the wind was blowing that direction right on the you town. You could smell it from Everybody. miles away. As far away as Eastport, Maine, they could smell it. Oh, I touched it. Probably felt the same as what it did almost when it was alive, cold. They're cold-blooded. And it did have a funny feeling. The texture of the animal was... A great big smooth piece of rubber. I touched it with one finger, and I had to use less oil to get the stench smell. really hard to get off your hands. I put hand cleaner on my hands. I put straight gasoline. You have to wind up bleaching it off your hands, and that's what I wound up doing. And finally they decided... Something had to be done about it. It would come to the point where no matter what it cost, it had to go. They knew <laughs> yeah, something had to be done. It had to be done. And they did done. something. One thing led to another, so they called Ramsell. A man named Ramsell. I was notified by the town of Lubeck. They contacted me to come down and dig a hole with that excavator. It was kind of a hazy, overcast day, and the sun didn't shine. And I think there was like a crowd of 15 or 20 people actually showed up. There were a lot of people, maybe 100, 100 or so people. Word spread fast. Everybody in town was there. But I just wondered, where are they all going, you know? So I went too. So we dug a hole as close as we could. And before I got the hole dug, he accidentally slid on his own and went into the hole. Sort of graceful. I mean, it was so big, it just took its time, just sort of... The side caved in a little bit. He rolled in, he slipped in and rolled up, belly up. When they finally rolled it into the hole, you know, everybody sort of quieted down. And they were kind of respectful. They were kind of sad to see it go. Oh, I don't know how to explain it. Something that you never think of, dying. You always hear stories that a whale is a passed-on fisherman's soul. Made me think how small I was. Yeah. There's a lot of people that think... Oh, I'm so big. I'm so great. No matter how powerful they are, something will happen in life that will cause people to say, how small am I anyway? We're both mammals who have reached the pinnacle of, of our place, and uh, they, they just seem to be close to us. I feel close to whales. And we buried it six feet over the top of it. Dug up gravel and stuff and covered it all over. And I've dug graves, you know, for humans here in Cutler also. It just seemed different to bury something with no box. <laughs> just putting raw earth right back onto his body. You picture him as being immortal, like a free soul, free will out there. You, you just don't see him dying. It, it was sad. It was very sad. And it took about two and a half hours, three hours to dig the hole and then fill it back in. And by noon time, it was all finished. I think I got like $300 buried with thing. I'd done the town a favor, actually. Maybe the whale, too. How do we know? It was just a day's work for me to, to help bury a whale. I mean, it was an oddity that to bury a whale. It was just something weird that it happened and something unforetold. And if you never did see it, <laughs> you couldn't understand it, you know what I mean? Yeah, as far as I know, it's still there. He's still laying there. That's about all I can tell you about the whale. I haven't been down there since. Maybe I'll go down and take a stroll over. <laughs> That's the way things went. 
And uh, this is from Mars Allen of Rollback, Maine. Just another fish story. Big thanks to Molly Minchel, who produced that piece. The music on this story was played with the Jews harp by Tapani Varis. If you'd like to hear more, go to tapanivaris.com. We'll have a link as well at snapjudgment.org. Molly created that piece when she was a student at the Salt Institute in Portland, Maine, where a lot of audio producers go to learn their chops. But guess what? The Salt Institute is currently in danger of closing. It's an invaluable resource. Even our own Joe Rosenberg is a salty. To find out more about efforts to keep this school open, visit savesalt.org. Now it's about that time. It is. But it doesn't have to be. Because we've got more snap judgment than you can shake a desiccated whale husk at. Just waiting for you right now. Subscribe to the amazing storytelling podcast, snapjudgment.org. Snap was produced by myself and the team that always fills in one for the other. My own personal proxy, the Uber producer, Mr. Mark Wistich. Pat Masini Miller. Anna Sussman, Julia DeWitt, Joe Rosenberg, Nancy Lopez, David Kim, Renzo Gorio, Anna Adamstein, Eliza Smith, Leah Morimoto, and Matt DeCott. Our scorekeeper is Jasmine Aguilera. And this is not the news. No way is this the news. In fact, you could build the most magnificent sandcastle ever made at high tide, confident that it wouldn't be destroyed in low tide, only to realize that you really don't know what the terms low tide and high tide actually mean, and you would still not be as far away from the news as this is. But this is WNYC. WNYC.